Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The year is 1914. World War One breaks out on the 28th of July plunging Europe and dragging the rest of the world into one of the bloodiest and fiercest battles ever seen on this planet. The amount of countries that are drawn into this battle from around the globe, ranging from the Asian continent through the European continent and the Middle East, a war that saw the demise of two great empires, the Ottoman Empire and the British Empire. In September 1914, the first Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, gives Shackleton the blessing to explore the South Pole, going from one side to the other. At a time where the British Empire was expanding throughout Asia and the New World, Antarctica was seen as the final frontier and a significant landmass. Shackleton's management style and people nature made him a great leader and his audacious will to take on the final frontier gave him no shortage of men to go on the journey. The story of Shackleton is an incredible one of survival, mystique and also a romance for the last frontier on this planet. Rob, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you on the show again. Maybe just to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about, you've just been down to the Antarctic for two or three months. Can you tell us about your trip and what happened there? And maybe some of the other trips, just as a starting point for the, for the discussion on Shackleton today. With pleasure, John. And it's great to join you and Mark on the show. Always is. And it's lovely chatting with you guys down under. I need to give you a little bit of a backstory, really, in that I, as a child, was fascinated with Antarctica and always heard about Scott of the Antarctic and the other players and the other explorers were never really mentioned, certainly not here in the South African context. And then when I became a teenager and started to do more reading about it, I learned that there were a lot of other famous explorers involved in these great races for the South and the North Pole, the Northwest Passage and so forth. And I became more and more obsessed with this great white continent to the South of us and really wanted to try and go there. And I realized that to go there as a fair paying passenger would be out of the question. It was just far too expensive. Now, given our last interview, you will know that my background really and my, much of my adult life has been devoted to the Anglo-Zulu War and the battlefields of Isantlwan and Rourke's Drift. And when I was planning to move on and do more besides the Anglo-Zulu War, I thought, what am I going to do next? And the obvious line of expansion was to get into Antarctic storytelling because all the centenaries were coming up. 2011 was the centenary of Roald Amundsen getting to the South Pole. 2012 was the centenary of Scott and his party getting to the South Pole and then dying tragically on their way back. And then 2014 is the centenary of this great expedition of Shackleton's on board the ship Endurance. So I started to actively study these men and the stories in detail in 2008. And I was lucky enough to go down to Antarctica on board of a Aleutian Russian jet 
on the 14th of December, 2011, which was the centenary of Amundsen getting to the South Pole to share a story about the race between Amundsen and Scott. In the interim, I was telling these stories often in land-based venues, conferences, dinners, schools, charities, hoping that someone in the audience will say, we should get this guy onto the ships going to Antarctica, telling the stories about these early explorers and early exploration. So it was a deliberate exercise to try and become a member of a team going to Antarctica. So the trip I've just been on now, this last season, I spent three full months in Antarctica. The first four trips, the first two months, we were with a company called Abercrombie & Kent, who taught a small, specifically designed expedition vessels from a French company called Ponant. And those ships carry 200 passengers or less, because if you have ships carrying more than 200 passengers, your landing options are infinitely limited. You can only go to certain places with the bigger ships. And as it is, the Aato keep it fairly tightly controlled. You can only land 100 guests at a time. So I had a marvelous time in Antarctica in the prime season, December and January, which is the prime two months down there. And then for February, I traveled back on a bigger ship called the Silver Quest, belonging to a company called Silver Sea. And we did the famous Cape to Cape. So we started from Punta Reyes, went down the Magellan Strait, to Ushuaia, then down the Beagle Channel into the Drake, down to Cape Horn, from Cape Horn across to Antarctica, from Antarctica then up to South Georgia. From South Georgia, we went to Tristan de Cunha. Now that is a remote place to visit, and I believe the most remote inhabited island in the world. And then from there, we sailed into Cape Town. Now sailing into Cape Town is always a special treat. I think people talk about San Francisco and uh, indeed your Sydney as glorious cities to sail into. But coming into Cape Town in the dawn, with the light over Table Mountain, Lion's Head, Signal Hill and all that, John, it was absolutely breathtaking. So that in a short resume is the trip I've just done. But I've been going to Antarctica a number of times every year on the ships since December 2011, and I absolutely love it. You know, Shackleton and Wilde coined a little term, those little white voices keep calling me back. And it was really about the allure of Antarctica. It's a very difficult thing to explain to people who haven't been. But I want to tell you that once you've been, invariably folks really want to go back. That is amazing. Now, actually, I'm keen to get an understanding of the Shackleton story. So have there been many attempts to find the endurance? Mark, no, there were two previous attempts to find the endurance because there is a huge current that flows around Antarctica in a clockwise direction called the circumpolar current, about 100 times larger than the flow of the Amazon. It's the greatest ocean current on Earth. And that ocean current creates in this area of ocean that we call the Weddell Sea between the Antarctic continent itself and that long peninsula of land that runs up towards South America called the Antarctic Peninsula. And as a result of this water going around Antarctica, it creates a huge gyre in the Weddell Sea. And because of the circumpolar current, it insulates the weather systems in Antarctica, and that's largely what keeps it so cold. Why global warming is not such an issue in Antarctica as it is in the Arctic. And that Weddell Sea, as a result of the circumpolar current and the cold, is a place that is bedeviled by pack ice, sea ice, and ice flows. It is the great iceberg factory of Antarctica in terms of the big ice shelves that carve off, creating huge icebergs and ice sheets. And as a result, to get into the Weddell Sea, particularly to the spot where the endurance sank, 
is extremely difficult. And then in 2019, the same ship that found it now in 2022, the SA Gullis 2 was down there. And one of their remote underwater vehicles, I think the value will always change depending on who you ask, but I believe it was about 8 million rands worth of remote operated underwater vehicle. They sent it off from the ship in search of the wreck and that underwater vehicle disappeared, which was a huge loss. They were really battling to hold their position in this moving ice. The ice moves at a rate of around three miles a day. So about 100 miles a month, 160 kilometers a month, that ice is moving off to the northwest in this clockwise direction of water current. And as a result, I think everyone was quite nervous about having another crack on finding the endurance. And I must say that my own views were, leave the ship in peace, because nothing could be gleaned by its discovery. It was very well documented. It was photographed. No one lost their life. And the dying moments of that ship, which were very sad and must have been devastating for the men on it who saw the ship as their home and sanctuary going down in November of 1915, I thought, leave the ship in its watery grave. It's not like the Erebus and the Terror in the Arctic, where we would glean much by finding those ships. Anyway, I've been forced to change my tune because this discovery is really extraordinary in every way. It's almost impossible to believe. So this was officially the third attempt to find the endurance. And the fact that they did in 3,008 meters of pitch black frigid water is almost unbelievable. Rob, what is the significance of finding the endurance? I think in this modern age, there are significance to finding the endurance on many levels. The first for me is that Frank Worsley, who was a New Zealander and captain of the endurance, had an uncanny ability with navigation. He was also a tremendously good plotter of position, bearing in mind that they were using an almanac of coordinates, a sextant and a chronometer. And he charted the drift of the endurance, where it drifted about 750 miles, 1,200 kilometers, moving with the pack ice. So it didn't move in a linear direction. It did circles and little squiggles and then a circle in another direction at the whim of the ice. And the fact that he plotted the position of the sinking of the endurance accurately enough that the search key team could limit the search area to seven square kilometers. And on the first or second descent of those remote underwater vehicles, they found debris from the ship. So they knew they were in the right area because it had been so smashed up by the ice. They found it four miles, six kilometers from where Worsley said it went down. Now, bearing in mind, we were just saying that the ice drifts at a rate of three miles a day. That is basically the daily drift rate of the ice. And between it breaking through the ice and then sinking three kilometers below on the floor of the sea is probably the direction of the current and the drift, which is why it was four miles from where he plotted it at the surface on the ice. So that to me is extraordinary. When we consider 3D GPS systems and global positioning systems and so forth, that this man could have so accurately plotted the position of that ship after 10 months of drift at the whim of the ice, to me is exceptional. And with my strong interest in history and the behavior of human beings when the chips are down, I'm hoping that there's a hook in this for youngsters, that younger people will become involved or interested in history, thinking here's a ship 
that sank 107 years ago and was found thanks to the incredible plotting by physical measurement all those years ago. And here we have these Saab saber-toothed underwater vehicles that can travel 100 miles, John, 160 kilometers from the mothership, do this incredible illumination of the seabed with their lighting, 3D imaging, and take the most incredible photos and videos to return with. The fact that the ship is reasonably intact is very interesting for me because if you look closely with my eye, having read a lot about what the ice did to the ship before she sank, you can see the sides are stoven, the bows in fact smashed, probably because she landed bow first, because she went down nose first and probably hit the seabed and then came to rest. But very importantly for me, John, I always work on the leadership lessons of Shackleton and his management of human beings. And now as the world opens up and loosens up at the end of COVID and these extremely challenging two years we've had, a term that I've only just come to hear, I knew nothing about it previously, about the great resignation. How people are changing their approach to the work situation, the office situation, and their work, work scenario is changing completely, largely on account of COVID and its effect on us. And I am busy relating Shackleton's man management and leadership strategy of 100 years ago with what is going on today. What would Shackleton have thought of it? What would young people today have thought of setting off, unsure even of a safe return? No contact with the outside world whilst they were away. No contact even with the other ship that was sent across to New Zealand to lay the food and fuel depots from the Ross Sea towards the South Pole. So the significances for me in all this are multi-layered and on many different levels. And the fact that they found the ship on the centenary of Shackleton's burial, to me, beggars belief. You must understand, he died January of 1922. His body was embalmed and prepared for a journey back to England. And when the ship and the body got to Buenos Aires and they sent a telegram to his wife, Emily Dornan in England, she said Antarctica always was his mistress, bury him there. So the ship was turned around and returned to South Georgia. The men were regathered and they had this burial in the main cemetery at Gritfikin, which is the main whaling station on South Georgia, on the 5th of March of 1922. And on the 5th of March of 2022, 100 years, 107 years after the sinking of the ship and 100 years to the day of his burial, they found it. And to me, who loves linking numbers and coincidences and dates and centenaries and all that, John, for me, the significances of all this, I can go on and on. I think it is a quite extraordinary piece of history in the making here. It's, it's, it's fascinating, the attraction of, of Antarctica. It really is the last, well, still to many, it's still the last frontier because it is such a remote location and such an unforgiving environment. But yet what you describe, Rob, it's, it's majestic and it just calls you because of that untouched beauty and the uniqueness of the continent because it's a continent, it's different to the Arctic. So I'm keen to get an understanding of comparing Shackleton and endurance. You mentioned before Erebus and the terror in the Arctic. What's, what, how do you compare the two and what, what are the differences? There are significant differences in that Shackleton came from a merchant Navy background. 
He was far more egalitarian, one of the boys. He was a man who was never threatened by resource, experience, station in life, who or what you were. And he wanted everyone around him to become the best version of themselves. And he helped his able-bodied seamen with reading of books and poetry and so forth. John Franklin was a man who came from a Royal Naval background. So you have this very striated, dictatorial, hierarchical level of leadership and organization within the Royal Navy. Franklin took two ships to the Arctic to try and find a way through the fabled Northwest Passage, the Erebus and the Terror, which were wooden and ice-strengthened, and they were officially made really as bomb carriers. So they had modified them for this Arctic expedition and felt that they were incredibly um, well-suited to the task and the challenges that lay ahead. Bearing in mind that Franklin at the time was 59. You know, the Royal Navy, when it was suggested that Franklin need the expedition, the man who was in charge of the Royal Navy at the time said, good God, the man's 60 years of age. And Franklin said, no, I'm not, I'm 59. Well, anyway, in my opinion, he was well past his prime. If you look at pictures of him, rather short, somewhat dumpy, and in my opinion, well past his prime. And he had had enormous challenges, health challenges, with the vagaries of the trips he'd done previously in the Arctic, trying to find his way up the Great Fish River, the Back River, the Northwest Passage. And out of it came that incredible book, The Man Who Ate His Boots, because they ended up boiling leather belts and leather boots, trying to make a broth to keep the men alive. He had spent time as the commissioner and governor of Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania, which at the time really was a penal colony. And the irony of it is, is that the Arctic is a very, very unforgiving place. Never mind the fact that the Antarctic is the highest, driest, windiest, coldest continent on Earth and rises up in some of the mountains to 15,000 feet above sea level. The Arctic is a sea surrounded by continents and land. As a result, it supports a much greater degree of mammalian life. In Antarctica, the only mammals are the seals and the whales that indeed move away from Antarctica during the winter. In the Arctic, you've got all sorts of things that end up feeding the local Inuit people. And John Ray, that famous, famous Scottish walker, a man of prodigious ability physically for walking and surviving in the cold, said that a country should always be able to feed its explorers. As a result, he said you needed small groups of people to explore in the Arctic because the animals are very spread out. And indeed, to find enough food to feed a large party is almost impossible. And he was violently opposed to Franklin setting off with 128 of the best the Royal Navy with their heavily supplied ships to try and get through the Northwest Passage. Because the man who eventually conquered it, enrolled Amundsen in the years 1904 to 1907, did it in a ship called the Joa, which is only 47 tons. And he had six men with him. 129 men on the Erebus and the Terror was far too big an expedition to think they were going to survive in the Arctic unless they stayed on the ships. But the ships were too big with too deep a draft to find their way through the Northwest Passage. And you have this complete dichotomy in leadership styles between Shackleton, who really was one of the team and one of the boys, and Franklin, who set himself apart. Ironically, Franklin was one of the first to perish in the Northwest Passage. So the leadership devolved 
down to men beneath him, particularly to a man called Crozier, an Irishman, who was an exceptionally good leader of men and placed in the most difficult of circumstances in the Arctic. But we could actually do a dissertation on the differences of leadership style of the men and of the expeditions and their respective outcomes between the Erebus and the Terror in the Arctic, the Northwest Passage, admittedly 70 years earlier, and Shackleton and the endurance done in the Antarctic. And I I fear that I might have given a rather flowery, not very concise answer, but I hope that you can see it is a very, very wide subject, this issue of leadership and how they approached it. Now, Rob, for us, you know, when you look back at all the photographs and from Shackleton, the what's very interesting for us living in Australia is Frank Hurley, the photographer. Can you tell us more about Frank and what his role was and also about the captain, the the New Zealand captain, Frank Worsley. Well, look, Frank Hurley is a very, very interesting guy. His name was Francis Hurley, but they all called him Frank. He was very opinionated to the point that they called him the prince. If you look at photographs of Frank Hurley, he was a pretty powerfully built man. And what is very interesting to note in the photographs are the size and the strength of his hands. And the point that I'm making here, John, it's always interesting for me how destiny plays its role in our lives. Frank Hurley, as a younger man, had considerable experience as a tinsmith before he realized his great passion for videography and photography. And Shackleton had taken him on with a promise of great reward financially from various editions of papers and books after the expedition. And Frank Hurley really went along to build up an enormous collection of magnificent photographs of the expedition. If you look at any of the videos and the photographs of this expedition, you will be stunned at the lengths that Hurley went to to get his photographs. You will see him up in the rigging of the ship, 100 feet off the deck, on frozen, extremely slippery beams off the masts, with not a camera, with a box cinematographer camera taking videos of the ship finding its way through the ice room up above. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. His midwinter shot is famous. It was taken on the 21st of June of 1915 with a ship trapped in the ice where he used 20 or 25 flashlights to illuminate the ship. It's the most haunting image with the rime and the frost in the rigging. And you can see that that ship is not going anywhere. But the way that he captured it and the effort that he went to and the self-sacrifice, because I'm sure he bumped his shins falling through the ice. 
he would have been incredibly cold and wet getting out there to try and take pictures like that, but he did it. And the point I wanted to make coming back to his hands and his tinsmithing background, uh, John and Mark, is that when the ship sank, the men had a month between them realizing she's going down. She was pierced by the ice, water was pouring in, she'd listed over to 30 degrees. Hurley captures these images beautifully. The men had a month before she sank to evacuate as much food, emergency supply and equipment from the ship as they could. And amongst it, they salvaged a huge amount of tin and metal. And Frank Hurley, with his background, could then make emergency primer stoves in which they could burn penguin blubber to provide light, warmth, and as a cooking fuel to give them hot drinks and warm meals. So everyone regards the cook, Charles Green, as the hero at this part of the trip, and not enough is made of Hurley fashioning these emergency primer stoves, one of which was even used in that incredible hike over the Aladars mountain range of South Georgia to get help from the whalers at Stromness. Now, Worsley, if you look at Worsley's background, he, in my opinion, was a bit of a vagabond. He traveled extensively. He said that he was working, walking down Burlington Street in London, imagining that icebergs were sailing past him. So just that comment alone gives me an impression of a man with a great imagination. And he saw the advert for Shackleton's expedition and looking for men. And he came in largely with his sailing background as captain of the vessel and as chief navigator. Thank heavens they employed him. Because Shackleton said, when we sailed in the lifeboat that James Cadd, from Elephant Island to South Georgia to try and get help. If we had missed that pinprick in the Southern Ocean by three miles, east or west, we would not have been able to get back to the island on account of wind and current. And Worsley on that trip saw the sun three times, 14 days in the heating ocean. So men had to stand on each side of him holding him as he went down on his knee to try and hold the sextant on his knee to get a reading between the sun and they are rising on a heaving ocean, on that tiny little 22-foot-long lifeboat. And I believe that he navigated largely by the seat of his pants and literally an innate ability as to where South Georgia was. They decided not to go to South America, which was much closer, because of the wind and the current coming up through the Drake Passage. They were going to use the wind and the current to take them in their little sailing boat to South Georgia. And thank God they made it. So Worsley and Crean, in my opinion, are really understated heroes of this entire expedition. And Worsley was with Shackleton right up to the point they walked into Stromness Whaling Station to get help from the whalers. That's incredible, isn't it? That's a fascinating story. So with Shackleton, was Endurance his first expedition to Antarctica? Now, Mark, I'm very glad you raised that question because this is fascinating. The bottom line is, because the Endurance Expedition is so famous, and of course now made even more famous by the discovery of the ship, everyone thinks that was Shackleton's trip to Antarctica. And they forget that these trips to Antarctica are not really made possible without considerable experience. So Shackleton first went to the Antarctica. His first expedition was on a ship called the Discovery with Robert Falcon Scott in charge, a Royal Naval background, dictatorial, the ship and the hut divided by a line of packing cases. The officers ate and slept on one side of that line. The rest ate and slept on the other. And on that expedition, Scott decided to take two men 
Linked together in traces, pulling a sled to try and get to the South Pole. They were beleaguered by very bad weather, woefully inadequate clothing, and a woefully inadequate diet. Now, what is interesting for you down under, Mark, is that the term beverage comes from a colonel called Beverage in the British military who created this ration that we call hoosh or pemmican, this dried meat extract and fat that the men then hydrate and eat as their primary food source on these expeditions. Now, that only provides four and a half thousand calories of nutrition per day. Tim Noakes here in Cape Town believes that man hauling in Antarctica requires about eight and a half thousand calories of nutrition per day. The bottom line is that Scott, Wilson and Shackleton did not even make it to the base of the Transantarctic Mountains. They still had 460 miles to go to try and get to the South Pole when scurvy set in and Shackleton was worst affected. Eventually, he couldn't take up his position in the traces and he was stumbling alongside of the sled. Well, eventually he had to be pulled on the sled, increasing the workload for Scott and Wilson exponentially to get back to the hut. By this time, the relationship between Scott and Shackleton had broken down irretrievably. And Scott sent Shackleton home saying, if he did not go home as an invalid, he would go home in disgrace, which was a slight that Shackleton took very personally. And I think Scott rude to the day he died. What is interesting is Shackleton then, a man who in my opinion lived life like a rushing wind. He was a dreamer. He had lots of get rich quick schemes. He was unorthodox. He was cavalier. He decided he was going to make a point and prove that he was the better man and better explorer. And he raised the money to go back to Antarctica in 1907 on board of a little ship called the Nimrod. And he was going to use petrol engine motor sledges, Siberian ponies, dogs, and then man hauling. The British have this obsession with man hauling. They believe there's something noble about men and traces pulling a sled together to the pole. Well, I don't have the time. I don't think we have the time to go through it in detail. But on the ascent of the Beardmore Glacier, where you move from 2,000 feet above sea level to 10,000 feet above sea level in 120 miles, deeply crevassed, treacherous place. They had horses pulling the sleds. And a horse pulling the sled holding most of the men's food fell soundlessly into a crevasse. It pulled the ultimate off the hand of Frank Wilde, and Frank was luckily left on the ice. But the horse and most of the men's food was gone. With that, they were reduced to trying to eat horse rations to survive. And Shackleton and the men who were with him proceeded to a point that they put down all their supplies on the ice, and Shackleton realized they did not have enough food to get to the pole and all the way back. So they made a dash with literally a day pack each, no tent, no sled, no emergency supplies to get within 100 miles of the pole. Bearing in mind that 880 miles from the hut to the pole, they've got 97 miles from the pole, Mark. I bet they felt they could have spat to the pole. When Shackleton put the Union flag on the ice, he wrote later to his wife that he figured she would prefer a live donkey to a dead lion. And he made his way back safely with the men to the hut at Cape Royds. The captain of the ship with a bad storm coming in had left 24 hours early. Oh, no. And Shackleton and his friend Wilde pulled cladding off the outside of the magnetic hut, which was built only of wood, so you don't have any metal interfering with the delicate instruments to build a fire to attract attention. And I think that Shackleton had a deep intuitive relationship with his men. And one of them sensed they might have got back to the hut and he climbed up to the crow's nest and he saw the smoke and insisted that Captain Davis take the Nimrod back to the hut 
to collect Shackleton and Wilde, but their colleagues, Marshall and Adams, who were younger, were 30 miles away overcome with dysentery, having eaten horse meat that had gone off on exposure to light and sun. And Shackleton, in his emotiated, dysentery-ridden state, led your Douglas Mawson, your famous geologist Douglas Mawson, who was as tough as they come, out with a team of dogs onto the ice to collect Marshall and Adams, back to the hut, onto the ship, and away they go. And there's a little sidebar story to this. Because when they went to Antarctica in 1907, Shackleton took 25 cases of McKinley's Old Highland Malt Whiskey from Glenmore near Inverness in Scotland. And one case of whiskey was stashed beneath the hut. We don't know by whom or for what reason. Was it for a celebration if they made it to the pole? Was it as a private stash for people who had a need to drink if the main supply ran out? We'll never know. But in the hasty departure from the hut, the case of whiskey was left beneath the hut. And this is where the coincidence come in again, Mark, because 100 years later to the year, in 2007, the Antarctic Heritage Trust lifted the floorboards of the hut to restore them. And they saw in the ice beneath the hut a case of frozen whiskey. Greatest liquor find of the last century. Now that McKinley's has been sold to White and Mackay. White and Mackay now faithfully replicate the whiskey. They've got the old blending records from 1897 because Shackleton and his men like the whiskey 10 years old. And if you buy a bottle of that whiskey, you make a contribution to the Antarctic Heritage Trust because part of the proceeds of the sale of this fantastic bottle of great blended Scotch whiskey go back to the Antarctic Heritage Trust to maintain the huts. Now, back to our story. With Shackleton getting 97 miles from the pole, which was called furthest south, an effort for which he was knighted, others realized that the South Pole was attainable. For God's sake, Shackleton had nearly got there. He'd also charted a route through the treacherous Beardmore Glacier. So the race took an ominous turn. There was now a German, a French, an American, a Japanese, and a British team racing for the pole. And coming in from the left field, which the British didn't feel was cricket, came the Norwegians with their commander, Roald Amundsen, and the dogs. Now, we know the outcome of that race, but that race was spurred on largely by Shackleton getting further south on his second expedition. So when Shackleton found that the pole had been discovered by Amundsen and Scott, he thought, what was the last great geographic prize left for humankind? And his unorthodox cavalier mind, remember the dreamer who lived life like a rushing wind, thought the next great geographic prize is a crossing of Antarctica. From west to east, across the continent, by the South Pole, we'll send a ship to New Zealand, into the Ross Sea to set up food and fuel depots out across the ice towards the pole. And I'll take charge of the others from the west, South America, South Georgia, into the Weddell Sea that we've been discussing in some detail here. Set up a base and take off across the continent with the dogs. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was Herculean. I'm being polite. The more objective amongst us would say it was an absolutely impossible attempt 
to think he was going to cross 1,800 miles, 3,000 kilometers, much of it uncharted, and pick up the food and fuel depots and exit via the Ross Sea. And it was that that created the endurance story. Now, the endurance story is fascinating because that ship was built in 1902 at Sandefjord in Norway and was considered the finest ice-strengthened vessel of its sort in the world at the time. Do you know that across the keel, crisscrossing, there were four-foot square beams to stop her sides being pinched or crushed by ice. But she was born and made, christened with the name Polaris. But Shackleton's family motto was, through endurance we conquer. So he changed the name of Polaris to endurance. And people who sail tell me it's poor form to change the name of a sailing vessel. And perhaps it was important of things to come. So we all talk about the endurance. That was Shackleton's new name because of his family motto. That ship was christened and built as the Polaris. And that is the ship we're talking about now, found on the floor of the Weddell Sea. Yeah, it's amazing. A very interesting story, Rob. To continue with, with Mark's wonderful question, John, the endurance was Shackleton's third expedition to Antarctica. He then went back on a fourth expedition on a ship called the Quest. And would you believe that many of the men who'd been with him on the endurance joined him? No post-traumatic stress, no suicides, no murders, no cannibalism. Nobody had gone off their rocker. And they joined him on the ship called the Quest to go back to Antarctica. Remember, Frank and Wilde and Shackleton said, those little white voices keep calling me back. And that's when he died at anchor at Gritfikin on the 5th of January, 1922, aged 47. So Shackleton actually did four expeditions to Antarctica and he died on the fourth. The endurance was the third. Well, the endurance actually worked for him because he survived, even though the boat didn't. Absolutely. They didn't lose a man on that side of the continent. Sadly, the Aurora on the New Zealand side lost three men, including its captain. And that is a totally separate story. So when people say Shackleton never lost a man, they're referring only to Shackleton's side of the continent and his side of the story. On the other side, the Ross Sea side, which is a treacherous place, the men did not fare as well. Their ship even broke its mooring lines and sailed off into the ocean between Antarctica and New Zealand was rescued by another ship towed back to New Zealand and eventually brought back to Antarctica. So for some time, those men sat in Antarctica without a ship even. It had blown away and disappeared off into the sea back towards New Zealand. It's an incredible story that is not part of this focal Shackleton story. Fascinating. So, John, I wanted to tell you, too, that Shackleton loved poetry, and he always encouraged his men, who he felt were perhaps not very well schooled and educated, to come into his cabin, and he would lend them a book of poetry, which he figured they might enjoy. And then he would discuss the poetry with them, because let's face it, many of us, men particularly, don't relate well to poetry. But Shackleton was trying to lift his men. And Shackleton's favorite poet was the poet Robert Browning. And they have a stanza from one of Robert Browning's poems on the back of Shackleton's gravestone. And the words read, I hold that a man should strive to the uttermost for his life's set prize. I hold that a man should strive to the uttermost for his life's set prize. Now, those words to me are beautiful because Shackleton always wanted everyone around him to become the best version of themselves. And I think striving to the uttermost for your life set prize achieves exactly that. 
And it goes a step further, John, because would you believe that the captain of the SA Gallus II that went down now on the successful search for the endurance is a youngster from Umlazi in Durban who grew up in the most humble, modest of circumstances. His name is Captain Knowledge Bengal. Now, Carte Blanche phoned me this morning to ask me a couple more questions regarding this interview going out on Sunday night. And they said that Captain Bengo is one of the most humble, modest, delightful human beings they ever met. And you know, John, he made a comment. He said, a hundred years ago, the ships were made of wood and the men were made of steel, relating mainly to Shackleton. He said, a hundred years on today, the ships are made of steel and the men are made of wood. And I thought, what a message in that for the youngsters of today, even for our generation. Today, the ships are made of steel and the men are made of wood. I thought it was just so enlightened for him to make that comment. Rob, in terms of the, the clothing, because there's such a big difference nowadays, you have all these modern materials and that. So what sort of clothing did they wear in those days to overcome the cold? Well, it's interesting, John. You know, they talk about with all this cold weather, the gear, they, they have a measuring marker they call the heat retention index. The clothing that Shackleton and his men were wearing was largely cotton or silk underlayers, then wool, and then they had a Burberry oil skin, they called them, an outer layer to try and keep them dry and to keep the wind out that had to be re-oiled. They say the heat retention index of those garments was roughly 18%. Do you know that on some occasions, those men whose boots weren't waterproof would wear seven pairs of socks to try and keep their feet dry and warm. Seven pairs of socks, and bearing in mind they don't dry at night because very little dries there. The heat retention index of modern clothing today, Gore-Tex, breathable, we've got these wicking underlayers and fleece and so forth. Merino wool in some instances is about 84, 85%. So there's no comparison really in the quality of the clothing of 100 years ago to what we have available now, and how quickly our modern clothing dries. Those men basically had one change of clothes, and they spend most of the time wet and cold. With it, terrible skin conditions, boils, carbuncles, sea sores, because your skin is exposed to salt water and very poor hygiene 24-7. That's incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? And also at the same time, you've got a world war that's underway. So if you think of 2014, you've got uh, World War I. So it's just incredible all this is happening at, at a very amazing time in the world's history. Mark, you're dead right. You know, Shackleton, when the World War began, he put his teams together and had his two ships, and he sent a message to the Admiralty, which at the time was headed up by Winston Spencer Churchill, offering his men and his ships to the war effort. And Churchill sent him a one-word reply and said, proceed. So proceed he did. Now, ironically, having survived that misadventure, when they got back to England, they had the indignity of being spat at by people in the street who said, you were having a jolly down on the ice whilst your comrades are dying in the trenches of France. And three of Shackleton's men, having survived this duel on the endurance, were dead within months in the trenches of France. And here we have a situation where they find the endurance, the coincidences in the centenary of Shackleton's death, on the centenary of his burial, 107 years after it sank, and we have this war going on in the Ukraine. And I want to tell you that 
The similarities and the coincidences for me are frightening. Yeah, it's very interesting. I just think the Shackleton story is amazing. Uh, the, the endurance, the adventure, and I think if there's something, I'm not sure what it is about Antarctica. It's whether it's because it's the last continent that no one gets to see. There aren't Kentucky tours that go down there, so there isn't a mass of people going. And it's interesting, Rob, everyone I've ever spoken to about Antarctica echoes exactly what you just described. They keep going back. Uh, there was uh, one operative, that uh, a client that I used to visit in Darwin of all places, which is the furthest northern city in Australia and very hot. He goes down to Antarctica every year. And I would say, how does Darwin link into Antarctica? It makes no sense. But when he would show you the pictures and just the smile and the engagement in his story, it's very much like, Rob, what you've just described. You make me want to go. You know, it's always been a, a little, it's been always a little, little voice in my head. I've got these little white penguins in my head saying, you got to go see this place. It's the last frontier on this amazing globe of ours that no one or very few people have got to see. So, you know, you're, I envy you that you've, been there that many times and you've seen such amazing things. Uh, I've only just been a, a student of Antarctica, but the allure and just you telling the story makes me want to do more research and find out more about all those intricacies of the Shackleton story because yeah, we've seen the movie, we've, we've he heard information, but you've given us snippets of just life and even just emotions and, and just what he was thinking that make you open your mind again and think oh my god and especially when you compare it to the modern era like john's question about the clothing what you just said about wearing what eight pairs of socks and they're being wet for months you get one fresh change that's it and then you're cold and wet and just how the pain would have been intense but overcoming that pain there would have been more elation being where they're at and seeing what they're seeing and knowing that there's no one else here. Well, look, you know, I think that Shackleton, he's considered to be one of the greatest leaders and managers of men that our generation will ever know. This is considered the greatest survival story of the modern era. The feat of navigation from Elephant Island to South Georgia is considered even greater than the voyage of the Kontiki. And I believe, John, that Shackleton prized the lives of his men above that of his own. He was always determined that at the end of it, if they stayed together and believed in him, he would get them out alive. And he was always anxious about the safety and the welfare of his men, so much so that he even gave them meager rations. At one time, they were eating 1,500 calories of nutrition a day. And in that cold, it's hardly enough even to keep a human being warm. But the lives of his men mattered more to him than his own life. And I think ultimately, it's why he died as young, young as he did, was this, he said there, Leadership has many penalties, and one of the greatest is that of loneliness, and particularly those times where you've got to make difficult decisions. That's a very good point, a very profound point as well, because yeah, it's, very, it's very much lonely at the top. Oh, very good, Rob. I think that's a fantastic story, really interesting too, and thanks yeah. very much for sharing it with us. Well, look, John, you're most welcome. Chatting with you and Mark is always a pleasure. Rob, you make, you, you've reinvigorated my desire to go to Antarctica. <laughs> Brilliant, Mark. I'm delighted. Get down there sometime. It's not all that far from Australia. If you look south, it's not very far. 
But it's got to be November, December. November, December, January are the prime months to be there. The, the middle of our southern summer.